We're going to be singing, or seeing, we will be singing it later too, in Psalm 57, that this was the passion of David's heart, even when he was in trouble, even when he was in the low times of his life, he wanted to see God lifted up and glorified among the nations. I'm going to be reading the title because that really is a part of the inspired text, not the earlier title made by the editors, but beginning at To the Chief Musician, set to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God Most High, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up, Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it they themselves have fallen. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Father God, we thank you for this, your word. It is our heart's hunger and desire to grow day by day, week by week, and be drawn ever closer into your bosom and to be conformed to the image of your dear Son. And I pray that as we continue to worship and and meditating upon your word, that your word would do its powerful work of sanctification and moving us from faith to faith, from glory to glory, by the Spirit that you have sent to us. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the psalm that we're going to be looking at is a very necessary transition between chapter 24 and 25 of uh, 1 Samuel. Next week we're going to be looking at one other psalm that comes between these two periods, but I think these will give us a, a real perspective on the heart of David in this uh, series on the life of David. Now, this psalm really is an unusual mix of lament and exuberant praise. And one commentary says it's really hard to classify this psalm. Is it a lament? Is it a a praise uh, psalm? Is it an individual psalm? Or is it a corporate psalm? Uh, You know, there's some aspects of the psalm that make it look like David is in the absolute dumps that nothing could be worse. And there's other aspects of the psalm, nothing could be better. It just seems great. In fact, uh, there's a couple of liberal commentaries that I have. I got conservative and uh, liberal ones. I like to know what they're talking about. But uh, they, they have said, this can't possibly be the same author who is writing this. There's such different parts of this psalm. 
uh, when you look at verses 7 through 11, you would assume that David was in the temple with beautiful surroundings, face to face with the glory cloud, no distractions. He's got the best accompanying, you know, choir and, and musicians. And uh, otherwise, how would you explain the fact that he is so caught up in worship in the second half of this psalm, you know, in mind, in, in will, and in, in his emotions? And yet you look at the title, and you see that David was at a low point in his life, and verses 1 through 6 reaffirm that. But I think that is the key to understanding this psalm and to applying it in our own lives because David is worshiping God when he feels like he has no more worship left in him. The very context of this worship, the cave that is mentioned in the title, is probably not a place where you and I would feel like worshiping God. And yet David somehow, by faith, is ushered into the realm of spirit-led worship. You know, Jesus said we need to worship in spirit and in truth. He's talking about the power of God's spirit. And so this is worship with all of the props removed. There's no great music, no great sound system. I don't think the sound system was working at all in that cave. Uh, you know, there's no great architecture. In fact, there's nothing that a lot of people consider to be essential for worship. Tony Evans once said, if you limit worship to where you are, the minute you leave that place of worship, you will leave your attitude of worship behind like a crumpled up church bulletin. So here's David worshiping with all of the props removed. And this is yet another difference that we see between David and Saul that flowed from the theme of the sermon two weeks ago, where we, we looked at this radical difference between pursuing God in everything we do versus pursuing everything as a substitute for God. Now, you may not have thought about it, but you can pursue the experience of worship as a substitute for God. Amos 2, Isaiah, early chapters. God said, these guys, they're worshiping their hearts out, pouring their hearts out. It looks like they're having great worship. And God says, I just don't accept it at all. It is possible to pursue the experience of worship as a substitute for pursuing God uh, himself. And So this is what we're going to be uh, looking at. Uh, How do we avoid that? I, I realize first, that I was doing exactly this when I left Prairie Bible Institute. I think I was 20, 21 years old, and I went to Vancouver to a little a church there of about 75 people, and there were no instruments. Uh, not, you, know, you could tell pretty clearly who was singing off-key and who was not, and the preaching wasn't the greatest in the world. And I had been leaving a church uh, in, in Alberta, that had incredible music, incredible choirs, incredible atmosphere, incredible preaching. And I'm going to this place, and I was having a hard time worshiping because all of the props were removed uh, from my worship. I suddenly realized I had subtly been substituting music, atmosphere, emotion, and other things for God. And so I had a hard time worshiping. But, you know, as I looked around that little congregation... I saw these guys were really into the worship. Some of them even had tears streaming down their faces. And I'm thinking, what are they getting that I'm not getting? I mean, there's nothing in this atmosphere that's emotional, nothing whatsoever. But I began to realize they were getting God. They were getting God, even with all of the props removed from their worship. 
And that's where God did a work in me and brought me to the place where I could worship God with the props, praise God, or without those props. And we will get to uh, see at the end of this sermon exactly how David did that. But I want to look at the title and then the first six verses to examine the problems that often rob us of this. There are five problems that could have hindered David's worship. And the first remarkable thing that I see about David's worship is he worships the very God who refuses to remove David's problems from his life. This is really an amazing thing. Take a look at the title. The title says, To the Chief Musician. Now, that's a statement of faith already because he's not at the temple. But he has faith. He's going to survive through this. He's going to be able to get this to uh, the chief musician. And uh, we'll be looking at the results of that faith in, under Roman numeral 2 later on in the sermon. But that's really what, where it all starts. It starts with faith. It's an act of faith to worship when you don't feel like worshiping. But then the title goes on to say, Set to Do Not Destroy. Uh, Adam Clark's commentary said that the likely origin of that title was that uh, God gave a warning to David in the, in the cave, do not destroy, when he was tempted to kill Saul, uh, like his compatriots had uh, been encouraging him to do. And in one fell stroke, he could have gotten rid of his problems. And Adam Clark says, uh, you know, God was warning him, no, do not destroy. Now, whether that's true or not, we do know from 1 Samuel chapter 24 that biblically David was not allowed to kill Saul at that point. And we won't get into the details of why that was the case because uh, that would be repeating ourselves. But it, here's the point. It was God's sovereign will that David have these problems. And yet he worshipped. This is the amazing thing. He worshipped this God. And what's even more amazing is God does the same thing in your lives. Perhaps you have a problem that you just wish you could get rid of, and you're telling the Lord, Lord, if I could only destroy this problem, then I would be joyful. And what are you s implying when you say that? You're implying that your joy is dependent upon circumstances, aren't you? See, what you're doing here is instead of seeking the God of joy, you are seeking the props of joy. And if God answered that prayer and said, okay, yeah, go ahead, destroy your problem, uh, you'd be missing out on the opportunity to enter into the supernatural in your worship and to be able to uh, worship God in the midst of your problems and to rejoice in the Lord always, as Paul commands us to do. And you know, many times this is a wrestling match. We're wrestling with the Lord, and it's not until finally we relinquish it and say, yes, Lord that we begin to find joy in the midst of our problems. I think one of the most remarkable movies for illustrating point A is the Kendrick Brothers movie, Facing the Giants. Uh, every time I see that movie, I'm brought to tears at one point. It's when, it's when uh, Brooke Taylor comes out of that clinic knowing that she can't have a baby, and she's at the car there. And, and uh, she, she just realizes... My, my life's hope has been robbed from me. I'm never going to have a baby. Now, what does the Scripture say about a person who hopes for something and hopes for something and knows they won't be able to get that hope? It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And when your heart is sick, you have a hard time worshiping, don't you? And see, what God is doing, His design in the problem is, is to change our focus. 
God brought Brooke Taylor to the place where she was willing to pursue God even if God would not give her a baby. God became her chief pursuit. And so when she realized, okay, I guess I'm not going to have a baby, she's by the car there. And this is the point that brings me to tears. She says, I will love you, Lord. I will love you. She had given it up. She said, Lord, I'm going to stop pursuing this. And her husband actually had had the same thing. What were his hopes and dreams? Is to have a winning team. That was his hope. And uh, he comes to the place where he finally says, Lord, you can have my hopes and my dreams. In effect, what they were saying was, I will still worship you. I will still praise you, even though you are the one who has allowed me to have all of these problems in my life. It's an amazing thing that the Spirit of God brings them to. The musician David Edwards said this about his most recent CD release. He said, pain, <clears throat> pain and life teach us to worship and cling to God. So my songs come from personal experiences of joy and pain in my own life. And I was struck by that. Pain and life teach us to worship God. Now, he probably should have said, pain and life should teach us to worship God, because for many people, it does the exact opposite. It fills their hearts with bitterness, doesn't it? It leaves them feeling empty, just like King Saul uh, felt so bitter and empty. But what God was doing with David is he was getting David to give everything to him. Lord, I give up everything in my life, all my dreams, all my pursuits, I give them to you. And then God was giving those things back one at a time, little bit at a time, as a stewardship trust. And in Mark 10, God says that when you give up your spouse, you give up your children, you give up your rights, you give up your house, and even give your problems to the Lord, the Lord is going to give those things back to you as a stewardship trust. And yes, he's going to give you your problems back as well. Uh, as a stewardship trust. That's a part of his stewardship. Let me read that section for you. Mark 10, 29 through 31. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, so there's the problems he's giving back to you as a stewardship trust. So you, you need to give your problems to him. He'll give them back. And he says he's going to enable you to be 100-fold more times enjoying them. With persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So as you pursue God with all of your heart, God ushers you into that supernatural joy. And I think the movie Facing the Giants illustrates that so well. If you want supernatural joy in your worship, stop pursuing worship and start pursuing God. Stop pursuing the props and the atmosphere and ask God to give you a focus that is exclusively His. Psalm 73, verse 25, David said, But the earth has nothing that I desire besides you. The earth has nothing that I desire besides you. This is why David could worship even when God sovereignly refused to remove his problems. Second thing that I see as key in these first few verses is that David is worshiping the God 
who cares about his problems. Now, it's not as if God is a mean person up there trying to see if he can make life as miserable as he can for us. No, God cares about our problems. And I want to try to flesh this out a little bit because it's not an automatic thing that this is going to bring joy to you because Saul realized that God cared about his problems. Who was Saul's biggest problem? It was David, at least in his mind. And he knew God cared about his problem, but it did not lead him to worship. So let me flesh this out a little bit. David's biggest problem was Saul. And the title says, A Mictom of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. Now, when he was in that cave and the noose was tightening around David's neck, it may have seemed as if God did not care. I mean, it would be a pretty natural conclusion. Where are you, Lord? How come you don't care uh, about me? But because David is pursuing God, not safety, he is able to keep pursuing God while he seeks safety. In other words, safety is not a substitute for God. God is his safety. And so verse 1 goes on to say, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I want you to notice the faith that he has as he runs to God. He says, my soul trusts in you. His trust was not in himself, in his soldiers, in his cave or anything else. He said he trusted in God. He knew God cared. Second, he trusts God enough to make the statement of faith until these calamities have passed by. He knows God's promises. He believes God's promises. And if he's believing God's promises, the question comes, how come he has to cry out to God? Why does he twice say, be merciful to me? Don't, can't you just wait for God to be merciful? And I think the answer to that comes in that next phrase where he says, and in the shadow of your wings, I will make my, my refuge until these calamities have passed by. Have you ever noticed um, what a, a chicken does when a hawk flies over? Chicken will make a special sound and it'll bring its wings up, and those chicks will dive under those wings until the hawk has passed by. That was the imagery that David was using to show that God cared about his problems. Uh, God loved him. God was, was uh, there to deliver him from his problems. And so here's the hawk of Saul flying overhead, an incredible danger, about ready to swoop down upon David. And David cries out to the Lord. He runs under the Lord's wings. <clears throat> it's precisely a knowledge that God cares that made David respond quite differently from Saul. Saul is a chick. And remember, we've looked before. Is he a believer? Is he not a believer? Believers can many times act like Saul. But Saul is a chick who sees the danger of a hawk flying overhead. What does he do? He runs to this shelter and that shelter, and he's frantically running everywhere except for to God, uh, who is the mother hen. And some of you, when you face problems, uh, have an orphan spirit like that orphan chick, Saul. And uh, those who have an orphan spirit have an awfully difficult time worshiping God. They're desperately trusting in anything and everything for their security and comfort. Let me just outline this a little bit. An orphan spirit strives for the approval and praise of man, and so it does not instinctively run to the Lord. Why would it? It's not in the Lord that it finds uh, a sense of security 
uh, and, 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 and approval. And you see this in Saul all the way back in chapter 13. When God rejected Saul from off the throne, he could have said, okay, Lord, I submit to this and I run to you. What is it you want me to do with the rest of my life? But Saul, instead of running to the Lord as an orphan chick, what he, he runs to Saul and he begs Saul to do some things and he runs to his men and he's running to all kinds of things to try to find this security. When an orphan looks at God's holiness, what does he sense? An orphan senses shame, overwhelming shame. When a son looks to God's holiness, what does he see? Now, yeah, he sees. I've got a long ways to grow up. I'm just a little kid. You know, I've got a long ways to grow up. But because he is so secure in justification, so secure in his, uh, his sonship, what he does is he stands in admiration that God would adopt someone like him and he wants to be like his dad, right? He cries out, Abba, Father. This is his heart's desire to grow up, but he's secure in that growing up in the Lord. An orphan spirit can't find comfort in solitude with God, but is constantly seeking for things to fill that empty hole. In fact, solitude just drives an orphan spirit crazy. By the way, I'm one of those people that had an orphan spirit. This is very common in Christianity for people to have this. It's one of the reasons I was such a workaholic for so many years. I still have tendencies toward that. It's because I've got to fill my life with activities. You get a person who's an orphan spirit alone with God in the quiet, no music playing. You know, people have the TV blaring. They've got all kinds of things going. But a person who has a sonship spirit, he delights in God. He delights in that quiet time, that fellowship with God. An orphan is constantly ducking. You know, it's almost like he's expecting God to be cuffing him at any moment. Whereas a son, he looks to the Lord and he, he's secure in the Father's love for him. And so this issue of knowing that God cares about you and your problems is a huge precondition to having David's kind of worship. Some of you said, boy, I wish I had the heart of worship like David did. Well, you cannot have that unless you have this security of sonship. I love the, the verse in Casting Crown Song. It says, I will praise you in this storm and I will lift my hands for you are who you are no matter where I am. Every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never left my side, and though my heart is torn, I will praise you in the storm. See, you can endure the storm if you know God cares, but you're not going to fully know God cares unless you are secure in your sonship. It's one of the reasons I've put the test on the back of your bulletins there. You can go through and you can rate yourself. How much on each of these things do I have an orphan spirit, which I'm still growing out of, I will confess that, and to what degree do I have a sonship spirit that is secure in the Lord? Orphans have a hard time worshiping. Sons and daughters find worship to be their very heart cry, even in the midst of the storm. The third thing that I see in David was an ability to worship the God who controlled his problems. This is digging even deeper. Let's take a look at verses 2 through 3. I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy 
and his truth. Now that second phrase in verse 2 I think is key to God who performs all things for me. God controlled every detail of David's situation. He was the one who prepared that cave. He was the one that enabled David to escape into it, who uh, made enough noise where uh, David was able to actually cut a piece off that robe without Saul noticing. Saul probably put the robe aside when he's relieving himself. David's able to creep up. God was the one who enabled Saul to back off when he is reproved. And uh, so God, providential control, was seen everywhere. Now, when you believe that God's providence controls everything in your life, you have got a much greater possibility or potential for being God-centered in everything. If God controls everything, you can be God-centered in everything. But when you believe that God controls everything in life for me, as verse 2 words it, you've got an even greater ability to have faith and anticipation. It's not automatic but it is a greater possibility. But thirdly, when you see God's providence of verse 2 as being for your good, verse 3, that's where uh, things really begin to change within you. It's much easier to worship. And even then, though, it's not automatic because you've got to take steps of faith to be able to enter into, into it. But it is much, much easier. In the movie, Facing the Giants, the feeling that everything was against them made the team want to give up, didn't it? They just felt like nothing's going right. Everything's against me. But when they finally began to see God's hand in both the wins and the losses, they began to praise God for both the wins and the losses. It was at that point that they began to have the faith that enabled them to worship uh, even uh, in their losses, in their difficult situations. It's not enough to believe that God controls all things because such a knowledge has made many men, uh, people bitter against God. That's exactly what happened with Saul. This is standard Jewish theology. I'm convinced Saul believed God controlled everything. Didn't he tell David in 1 Samuel 24 that the Lord delivered me into your hands? So he knew God's providence was covering everything and yet he did not find joy in God's providence. It was not transformed into worship. Charles Spurgeon once said, We believe in the providence of God, but we do not believe it half enough. When you grumble over providence, you're only believing the first part of verse 2. Okay? When I first became a Calvinist, I, was, I firmly believed that God upholds all things by the word of His power. Not a sparrow can fall out of the tree without God. Every dust particle that goes along, gets breathed into my nose, you know, is controlled by God. I believed everything at the Providential History Festival. I would have said amen, you know, to that penicillin talk. That uh, God controlled the, the changes, fluctuations in the temperature and the Petri dish being uncovered and, and down below, you know, that mold growing at the right time and that mold spore wafting through the air in a circuitous fashion and falling into that Petri. How would have believed all of that stuff? And yet somehow I still felt everything was working against me. I was an ultimate pessimist. Uh, all things are working together for my bad. You know, I was always anticipating the worst in every situation. And I found myself frustrated with providence. It's very hard to worship God when you've got that kind of an attitude. 
Now, I remember the day when I began to look to the Lord in expectation for every stub toe, every ingrown hair, (laughs) you know, every financial loss, everything. And it changed. It revolutionized my life because I began seeing providence as for me and for my good. It revolutionized my ability to find joy in the most miserable of circumstances, and even circumstances that weren't, you know, terribly uh, miserable. I remember one time, uh, I used to get so anxious in the traffic, if I get slowed up or whatever, but I, I remember at that transition point in my life, my car broke down, and I could have gotten very anxious because I was going to miss a very critical meeting, very important meeting, and you've got to understand, orphan spirit people, they just, they just feel horrible if they're letting anybody down. They just feel awful. But the first thought that came to my mind was, this is a gift from God, and I can hardly wait to open up the, 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 the wrapping paper to see what is inside. I didn't know what was inside. Maybe God is sparing me from an accident. Maybe he's going to have me talk to somebody. In that particular case, I never did find out what it was that God had, but I had a, an anticipation God had something good in this for me. And um, because I was pursuing God rather than that meeting and the people at that meeting, I was able to worship while I was stranded there by the roadside. What I was doing is I was worshiping the one who controlled my problems. Can you see that? Facing the giants had another theme. This is point D. Never give up, never back down, never lose faith. David had learned that there was no giant too big for God. And let's read verses 4 through 5. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. What was David's response to the lions and the fire the spears that were coming ready to destroy him. It was exactly the same response that he gave to the giant Goliath. He saw God as transcendent. Transcendent means he's exalted above uh, everything. He is exalted in his glory above the earth. He's exalted in his glory above our problems. And when you are so low that you feel you have no worship left in you, What you need to do is very self-consciously move your focus from your glory to God's glory, from your aspirations to God's aspirations, your honor to God's honor. And as your, your focus shifts, what you do is you begin to recognize, hey, God is a pretty big God. And you see God becoming bigger than your problems. Your faith grows and all of a sudden you feel your desire for worship grows as well. Now, I've just got one more point under Roman numeral one. David was worshiping the God who overcomes our problems. Take a look at verse 6. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. Now, the kind of pit that he was talking about there was, uh, in the ancient world, they would dig a great big hole, a fairly deep hole. They would put branches over top of it. And then they would cover the branches with dirt so it would just look like a regular uh, earth. So when the animal would walk onto that, it would fall down into the pit and they would be able to catch it. Well, because Saul was circling David in, he had to hide in this cave. He had nowhere else to escape, and that was a pit, as it were, for David. But Saul did not know that David was in that cave 
So he goes into the very pit. He becomes trapped. And if it was not for David's faith and David's mercy, Saul would have become killed. And so what David is saying here literally came true. Now, you might assume that because David is uh, engaging now in exuberant praise, he must have been delivered. I don't think that's the case, because if you read this psalm from the beginning to the end, his problems are not over yet. And uh, there is debate on, did he write this right after the escape from Saul, or did he write it before? The dawn is mentioned. If it's the dawn of that day, then it's before Saul. Uh, so all of this was written before by God's inspiration. If it's the next day dawn, it's the next day. But I think he's in the cave here. In any case, no matter which interpretation you take, if you read the very next verse in 1 Samuel, chapter 25, verse 1, you see, oh, he's just got all kinds of problems continuing in his life. His friend and mentor, Samuel, dies. And then he's got to run from Saul once again. So he's not praising God because his problems are gone. Instead, he has learned how to praise God in the midst of his problems. And I've got basically three points here that um, are keys uh, to uh, his being able to worship in this way. The first key is inward resolve, and that's in verses 7 through 8. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Or as some translate that, my heart is full of resolve. Now, what is it he is steadfastly resolving to do? He says, I will sing and give praise. Worship is in part an act of the will, a determination to put our all into what we give to God. Whether we feel like it or not, we are resolved to worship. We are steadfast in worship. Worship sometimes has nothing but faith to get it going. All the props have been taken away. All we got is faith. Uh, probably you, most of you guys are way too young to remember the old-fashioned uh, pumps that you had to prime. Uh, we had them up in uh, Canada and a few places when I was uh, younger. And what you had to do with these pumps is pour a pitcher of water down the, the pipe and then start pumping like crazy, and it gave enough friction where it was able to suction stuff up, and then you could keep pumping the water, all the water that you needed. And... That's the way it sometimes is with worship. God gives faith. It's a gift of God. That's the pitcher of water. And we use that faith to begin what seems dry initially. Boy, this worship is dry, Lord. My private devotions are dry. We step into it. It's dry. But you start singing your lungs out by faith. You start raising your hands by faith. And by the way, do not be a Greek who divides body and spirit. That's so Greek, it's terrible. Our whole bodies and spirits, our emotions, every part of our being has to worship, okay? So don't be a Greek and sit there and look on your body like you're not worshiping. Say, oh, yeah, but my spirit's worshiping. No. Our faith is exhibited in our whole being entering into worship, okay, when we do not feel like it. And as we do that, what, what happens is there is an increase of our ability to worship. So God gives us the water of faith as we're pumping like crazy, God gives more of those living streams of water into our lives. So let's keep reading here. Verse 8, Awake, my glory. Now commentators point out that my glory is my soul because our soul is the image of God's uh, glory. And our souls can be so lethargic. They need to be wakened up. We need to say, snap out of it, soul. You don't feel like worshiping, but you need to wake up. Wake up! 
So he keeps on going. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. So here is a man who feels dry, but he wants his soul to be on fire for the Lord. He wants his music to be on fire for the Lord. He wants his worship to wake up the dawn. Now, normally, we think of the dawn waking us up, but he's saying here, no, I want my worship to wake the waker. This is Asham worship that he is talking about here. And so he gets to that place by starting with faith in the title, And in the first six verses, he shakes himself out of his despondency, refuses to give in to his glumness. And then in verses 7 through 8, he resolves that no matter what, he's going to awaken himself to worship. Okay? In other words, he's fighting for joy. As uh, John Piper words it in that wonderful book, Fighting for Joy, he is fighting to praise. He is fighting to worship God with all of his heart. Now, sometimes worship is easy. We're on top of the world, and it's the easiest thing to worship. But I tell you, when you're down in the dumps and you have all kinds of problems like David did, your worship has got to be very intentional, very proactive, and sometimes it takes these actions of faith. I'm going to worship, even though I don't feel like it, to prime the pump of worship. The second thing that lights David's worship on fire is a missional desire to share what he is doing with others. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. Now, let me point out that wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, this kind of attitude is produced. Just as the Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son, and the Spirit glorifies both Father and Son, when the triune God fills our worship, Each member of the Trinity not only drives us to glorify the other members of the Trinity, but wants others to glorify them as well. They're zealous for the glory. The Spirit is zealous for the glory of the Father. Here's how John Piper words it. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the people's in the greatness of God. And so spirit-given worship is never going to keep the enjoyment of worship to ourselves. It's always desirous that God would have more and more. We want people worshiping God. That's what the spirit drives within us. And if you are worshiping in the spirit, you are oblivious to your own desires and preferences for preaching and music and architecture because the spirit doesn't focus on things He focuses on the Father, okay? And so we've got to ask God the Spirit to give us the same white-hot enjoyment to glorify God that He Himself has in glorifying the Father. Now that brings us to the third aspect of David's worship. It had an upward reach. Verses 10 and 11. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Now, how could David see that when he's in a dirty, filthy, dark cave? 
I mean, surely we've got to have an architecture, you know, that's got these arch ceilings that direct our eyes up to the Lord. And I say, no. If you are pursuing God, not architecture, if you're pursuing God, you have the Spirit of God and you've got everything you need to focus on God because that's where the Spirit focuses. He focuses on the Father. Now, when Saul worshipped God in 1 Samuel 20, remember, he's a worshiper. None of the other people even thought that he was a non-Christian. When he worshipped God in 1 Samuel 20, where was Saul's focus? It was on the people who are around him in that building. He notices that David's spot is there. And what's with that? You know, David's not. He ought to be here. He ought to be listening to the sermon. And he's focusing, you know, on, on uh, the fact that his son Jonathan does not respect him like he should. And the other people here are not noticing him like he should. And so his worship falls to the ground because he's pursuing things, whether worship or all the other things that are out there, rather than pursuing God. Now, we should not get on Saul's case unduly because without the Spirit of God, every one of us does exactly the same thing. What do we do? Our minds wander and we're thinking about, you know, the work lineup on next Tuesday and we're thinking about the lint that's on the uh, collar of the person in front of us and wondering, boy, should I flick that off or something else on the baby? You see, apart from the Spirit of God in our lives, we get distracted. We have a hard time focusing on the Lord and that's why we have to cry out to God, Lord, I need a spirit of worship. I cannot worship as you desire the worship unless your Spirit engenders that within me. We're we're totally dependent upon God. A.W. Tozer once said, We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. He is saying, We tend to become more and more like the one that we are worshiping. Two weeks ago, we examined the primary difference between Saul and David. It was not that one worshipped and the other did not. The primary difference was that Saul pursued everything as a substitute for God and David pursued God in everything. Saul was trying to fill the emptiness within him with all kinds of things, with worship, with uh, music, with success. But that emptiness was a big dark hole that never was able to be satisfied. David was involved in the same things, but whether God took those things away or whether God kept those things, his ultimate pursuit was God. Now, he enjoyed the props. I enjoy the props. Every one of us do, the props of music. Uh, He he wanted the best music and the best worship that he could have at the temple uh, later on in his life, but he enjoyed God more and was therefore still able to have worship in that filthy cave when he was at a low ebb in his life. And so my final admonition to you is that the Spirit of God can only take you from verse 1 to verse 11 in your personal devotions, in your corporate worship Sunday by Sunday, by His power. He's already given you the faith that you need, and He calls you to use that faith and to say with David, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. And so what I I would urge you, seek God, not worship. If you seek God with all your heart, the Scripture promises you will find Him. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Father God, we thank You for this, Your Word. We thank You for Your patience with us. We thank You how You gently lead those of us who have 
uh, tendencies toward an orphan spirit by your son to be able to cry out, Abba, Father. We long for more and more of this Abba, Father relationship. And we know that it's only your spirit that can engender that. And so we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, the spirit of prayer and supplication, the spirit of worship, the spirit that glorifies you. Move us, Father, by your gracious spirit deeper and deeper into your counsels. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.